Hey, hey, my soon-to-be-published author friend. Welcome to the next episode in our Featured Expert series. Today's guest is someone I know you're going to love and get lots of value from. I met her several years ago and have watched her career with interest and been inspired by both her success and her vast levels of knowledge and experience. Today, I'm happy to introduce you to our guest, Ricky Heller. Ricky is a writer, editor, and whole foods recipe developer. Dr. Ricky holds a PhD in English and loves working collaboratively with clients to get results through writing clear and effective copy that reflects the writer's unique personality. In addition to editing both fiction and nonfiction books, online copy, and business text, Ricky is also the author of four books, including Respond in Writing, a college essay writing text, and Sweet Freedom, which was recommended by Ellen DeGeneres. She contributes regularly to magazines, websites, and podcasts, including places like ABC News, NBC.com, Canada AM, Shape Magazine, and others. Grab a pen and paper as we get ready to dive into this juicy conversation to help you elevate your writing by steering you away from three main mistakes new writers make and what to do instead. Here we go. This is the podcast where you'll learn what you need to know to independently publish your first nonfiction book and how to elevate your influence, impact, and income in the process. Welcome to She Gets Published with your host, Amazon International best-selling author and self-publishing coach, Lynette Pottle. Ricky, I could not be more excited to have you here. We have been connected in circles now, gosh, since I think 2015, probably. So to be able to have this conversation with you and bring your expertise to my audience is just a real thrill. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much. And yeah, I feel the same way for sure. (laughs) So I know that our main topic today is really going to be tapping into your brilliance as an editor, but I cannot have you here and not address the fact that you are a four-time author yourself, and you've had the really unique experience of being both self-published and published by other uh, companies, as well as being recommended by Ellen DeGeneres herself. So you've had some pretty cool author experiences, and I'd love if we could just start briefly. I know we could have a whole conversation, a whole episode about this, but just kind of your main takeaways about the differences between traditional publishing and self-publishing. Yeah, for sure. And it's been quite a ride. So I think really it boils down to how much control the writer would like over the content and the appearance of your book and also the marketing. So it's really an issue of control. And and when I self-published, I had actually applied to um, various publishers and I did get some bites, but then I decided it, I was, it was a cookbook and um, they wanted me to take the photos and I just felt that I wasn't skilled enough to do that. So I declined and ended up, of course, self-publishing and using my own photos anyway. <laughs> um, but it really, that self-published book was the uh, stepping stone to working with publishers because I, I did quite well with that book and that allowed me then to acquire an agent and um, get the the next two books published. So I I think really the difference for me was, you know, when you're self-publishing, you're in control of everything. You decide everything. When you work with a publisher, 
you know, they, they design the cover and you may or may not like it. They just, uh, in fact, um, we had a discussion about the title of my second book and the, which was naturally sweet and gluten free. And the publisher ended up choosing their choice of title. Right. So things like that, where, you know, they have so many more years of experience and certainly they have more marketing experience than I did at the time. And they have a greater uh, distribution uh, channel. So, uh, you know, I, of course, deferred to their expertise in those areas. But just to be aware that some of those decisions will not be your own if you work with um, a traditional publisher. Yeah, exactly. And I love the, that part of your story where it's like, you know what, you you go ahead, you self-publish your first book. And it doesn't mean that you self-publish every book. You may. You may enjoy having the control and freedom to do those things that you want, but it also can be that stepping stone. So it doesn't peg you in the fact that now, oh, now you can never be picked up by a traditional publisher because you've self-published. There's so many opportunities uh, to leverage the experience. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And it was that self-published book, in fact, that was recommended by Ellen DeGeneres. Get out of town. <laughs> so, you know. How cool that, is that? You, that? That was, I remember my legs shook for the rest of the day after I saw that on her website. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> crazy good indeed. Well, I just love that. Um, and and we, I'm sure we will have more conversations about that in the future. Um, but what I do want to tap into today is is really that zone of genius that you have within the editing realm, because our listeners here at She Gets Published are primarily first time authors and first time publishers. And I know that when you work with folks that you you see patterns, right? There are patterns of things where we can fall into traps and go down rabbit holes that aren't always in our best interest when it comes to the form of our writing. So I'm hoping we can, you know, pick your brain a little bit about some of those things, things we can steer clear of as we're moving from rough draft, maybe it's starting our manuscript or moving from rough draft to putting it in the hands of an expert, of an editor. Sure. So I'm ready to jump right in if you want to uh, start with. Okay. I'm thinking you probably do see some things, repetitive things. It's patterns that show up because just by nature, it's, it's what we do when we write. Yes, exactly. Um, and I'm sort of also looking at some, uh, you know, they're more of an overview of the kinds of things that people do. So I'll just start with the first thing that for me, I think is really um, number one that in terms of, and I don't know if I would call it a mistake, but it's just something that really writers ca- could do differently that isn't serving them well. And that's writing too many words, mm. believe it or not. So, um, you know, there's a, a famous expression that I think it's attributed to Mark Twain, but um, I've read different people, but he sent a letter to a friend and he started by saying, if I'd had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, when you edit, the editing is what takes the most time where you where you work through. I mean, it's easy to throw all the words on the page. And, and we are supposed to do that in our first draft. And, you know, I think I don't know if I'm allowed to use swear words on the go, show. But go for it. OK. Hemingway called it your shitty first draft. Yes. Right. So the, where you just throw everything on the page. And so that's great. But what happens far too often is I think people end up keeping way too many of those words. And speaking of Hemingway, one of his most famous books, um, 
The Old Man in the Sea, apparently his editor asked him to chop the first three chapters entirely, <laughs> just wow. get rid of them. And, and it made it a much better book. And so if we approach our revision with that in mind, that we you want to just get everything out when you start, but for most people, they leave still too much in there. And so to make your writing as concise as it can be and as clear as it can be, often that means shortening it and removing unnecessary words in the writing. Yes, yes. And one of the things that I find too in that process is just because it's content that doesn't make its way into the book doesn't mean that it's not content that has value in other applications. So maybe it's something that we can use in a blog post or on social media. So it doesn't mean that everything has to end up in the wastebasket either. Oh, for sure. I mean, I keep a Google Doc of everything that I cut from my writing, whether it's articles, blog posts, manuscripts. And yeah, then you can repurpose it somewhere else. And, 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 you know, big chunks like that. But even on the sentence level, often what happens is we will use wordy language when we could be using more concise language. Yes, I, so. I can raise my hand. I have been guilty of that <laughs> on more than one occasion. It is definitely oh, yes. a learned skill and something that takes a lot of practice. Yeah. If you're if you're editing your own work, I, I think it, it really does take a lot of practice because also, you know, as writers, we are so close to the work that it's often hard to see what's in front of us. We've, we've seen it so many times. It's like, you know, when you lose your keys and you you say, I, I say to my husband, I've looked everywhere in the kitchen. I can't find them. I've looked everywhere. And he says, these right here, you know, because <laughs> it's a fresh set of eyes sees it differently. Oh my gosh. Yes. That is so stinking true because we are it, like, it's personal. Usually when we're writing, it is something, especially in the nonfiction genre, it's something that's very personal to us. And sometimes we, we do lose our objectivity, right? Yeah. And it's just natural. It doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. It's, that's just the way human beings are. Right. And having an awareness of that is what takes us to the next level and really helps us not only to present our editors with our best first draft, but also, I think, being open to the feedback that you receive from your editor. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, a a tactic, I wanted to also supply people with a tactic for each of these mistakes. So one thing you can do in that instance is set it aside for maybe even a week if you can, because that allows your brain to reset. And when you come back, you will notice some of those slips or the wordiness, the things that you didn't notice before. Great advice. Awesome. So what is another uh, mistake that you can help us avoid, Ricky? Okay, so this one I call the eye trap, <laughs> the letter I trap. <laughs> um, because, you know, as writers, and especially with nonfiction, we really want to try to connect with our readers and, and tell stories from our own lives. But what I've noticed is with a lot of the books I've edited anyway, that often falls into people telling their own stories a lot. You know, they're using their, their own um, stories as examples because it is what we know, but also not being aware that you still need to connect with the reader, even when you're telling a story from your own life. So, you know, I don't know um, if you know my story, My the last book I published, which was called Living Candida Free. So I had been dealing with candida overgrowth for a long time, which is just a, a condition of 
um, it's overgrowth of yeast in the in the body. And and my I had symptoms and I had been t- from doctor to doctor. So I opened my book by telling the story of how I had gone to 14 dermatologists wow. and no one could help me. But the re but you keeping in mind the reason for the story is to connect with readers who may have had a similar situation, maybe not with Candida, but it's so I, I hear from so many people who have chronic conditions or maybe it's something that's new or just a little unusual, and the doctors don't recognize it as something wrong with them. Their tests come back normal. So this is a very common experience. And one of the things you can do certainly include your own experiences, your own stories, but always, always make sure you somehow connect that to your reader and so that the reader understands why you're telling the story. And it, it could be as easy as asking a question, you know, maybe you've had the same experience or this might resonate with you so that they can feel the emotional connection to what you're talking about. Yeah, so important because really in telling our stories, it's about the audience. Even if it's our story, it's always about the audience. And one of the, I I put myself through this little test um, also. It's like, is this story, am I telling this story just because it's fun to tell? Because I have some really great stories that are fun to tell. But, or or is there a purpose for this? Am I able to connect this to a lesson or an action? Or is it just something that I find entertaining (laughs) that isn't best suited for this particular application? Yeah, exactly. And because it is so easy to become lost in our own stories because they're so close. Again, it's, it's how close it is to us. And it feels like maybe it was something really important in your life, but always, always asking that question. How does this relate to the reader? Is this going to be relevant for my reader? What does my reader need right now? And can they get that from this story? Mm. I think. What does my reader need right now? That is, that's priceless. Like write that down (laughs) Uh, as you're listening. If you're driving, come back, bookmark that part, uh, because that that's a, a really big it's a small question that has a big impact on the quality of what we're writing. Yeah. And really, like you said, everything goes back to the reader. That's why you're writing this book is to either help someone, educate someone, inspire someone. It's always the person reading. Absolutely. Great, great tips. All right. So what else have you got for us, Ricky? So the third one, which I think is also one of the main errors, and I call this one voice of a stranger. Mm, <laughs> because, intriguing. Um, <laughs> because in my experience, at least so many people, especially new writers, have this um, impression that in order to come across as an expert or a professional in your writing, that you have to adopt this particular tone of voice that's very formal and that sounds like someone who's very educated and erudite. And so they will use language that isn't necessarily their own language, right? And it doesn't, what you want in your book is, of course, you want to come across as an expert in whatever field you're in, but you also want to sound like you. And particularly for people who already have an established business, and now they're writing a book, perhaps on the same topic or a different topic, your audience knows you, and they've probably seen you on video or heard you in interviews. They know what you sound like, and they have an impression of what kind of person you are. And then to have a very stilted, formal voice in the writing, it just isn't what is going to resonate with them. It isn't going to work as your book, and it doesn't sound like you. So I think 
Um, retaining your own voice is so, so important. And um, I, taught, I taught English at a college for many, many years. And I, I saw this very often in English essays, but I also see it in book manuscripts. And I think this may be more than anything is the hallmark of a, of a new writer who is doing what they think they should do instead of what comes naturally. So I would say always think about how you would say things. And sometimes simpler is better. It doesn't mean that you can't sound intelligent and knowledgeable if you keep your language simple, if that's the way you talk. So um, there's a, and this guy, I don't think he's been around for a long time, but there was a, a grammar expert and he was also, uh, he wrote articles in various journals named William Sapphire. I don't know if you, if you've heard of him. I haven't. You have? No, I haven't. I'll have to look him up. Oh, okay. Well, he, I think he was really popular, like in the fifties or something, okay. but he came out with a list of what he called fumble rules of grammar. And the one that I think applies to this, that I think is so cute. So it was the, it, it was a list of rules where each rule demonstrated the thing you're not supposed to do. Gotcha. Right? So the, the rule was never use a long word where a diminutive one will do. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that we can sort of apply that to this kind of sense of, of formal writing where if your writing doesn't sound like you, it's not going to resonate. And so in order to avoid that mistake, I would say, you know, write your manuscript and then try reading it out loud and see how it feels speaking it. And if you can record it even better and see what it sounds like, see if you, you feel that that sounds like your voice. Now, I mean, of course we all have different ways of speaking when I'm, you know, talking to my dogs or if I'm having a, a chat with my, my best friend on the telephone, my language is going to be slightly different from when I am presenting a workshop, let's say online. However, it still sounds like me right? I'm not using vocabulary that I would never use otherwise, or, you know, so everyone has their more, their slightly more formal presentation and they're more informal, but you still want it to sound like you, you don't want to start bringing in words or extra long sentence structure or things that you think sound professional when it isn't a reflection of who you really are. Oh my gosh. And you know where this really showed up for me personally, just a quick personal story is my backstory, my career, I had almost a 20 year career in human resources. And so when I started writing, even post um, for social media, long before I thought about writing in book form is I would catch myself like my writing would be so stilted to that, that corporate kind of talk mm -hmm. that totally like that wasn't what my audience was resonating with. And it's not how I talk. Like if the, you hired me to speak, that isn't how I would speak because I'm just very down to earth. I do use simple language. I use slang. It, that's who I am. And so it's taken a lot of practice and I find myself, I haven't uh, worked in HR. Gosh, I left that over five years ago and it still will show up in certain situations. So um, I love this tip about kind of having your spidey senses up, your radar up around, It's is this really your own voice coming through? Yeah. I mean, especially in nowadays, because so many people are speaking online, I think, yeah, there, there's, there is a big difference between what we consider like a corporate voice and 
even a business person's voice, someone who's used to speaking to the public, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I can remember so many times when I was even at the college, but certainly where when I worked in offices and summer jobs or whatever, and, you know, the boss would go up to give a presentation. And it was so obvious that they hadn't done this very often. It, it was very formal and very stilted and people were, you know, looking sideways and yawning and whatnot because they didn't have experience in how to talk in a way that engaged the audience. And I think there's a very similar um, issue that happens when people just translate what they think is a form of voice to writing. And I mean, the good news is you don't have to, you don't have to talk that way. You can just be yourself and people will love it. Exactly. Yeah. They're going to love you even more because you're real and authenticity is what people are looking for connection. So exactly. Yeah, I think so. Great, great tips. Did you, I think we hit all three. We talked about being objective about your work and focusing on, on your audience, not too much on I to pare down our words, to be as concise as possible, say it as powerfully as we can with as few words as we can. And to make sure that we're using our own voice, not what we think um, someone else wants for a particular, um, you know, in creating authority, it's about still using our own voice. Yes, exactly. And I mean, if you think about it, the people who truly are authorities and have the confidence in their own expertise, they don't speak that way. They're very comfortable just being who they are, right? Exactly. Comfortable on their own skin. Well, this has been so fantastic, Ricky. I know that even beyond all the awesomeness that you have shared with us already today, you have a special gift that you wanted to share with our listeners today. Yes. So I know that for new writers and especially people who maybe have dreamt about writing, but aren't sure what to write about, because that's so often the sticking point for so many new writers, um, is where, what do you say? So I have a, a, f- a gift for your audience, and it's called My Guide for the Three Best Tips to Finding Your Book's Topic. And if people would like to download that, they can just go to rickyheller.com forward slash guide, and they will find it there. Fantastic. And of course, we'll put a link in the show notes to make that easily accessible for folks. So if you don't have a pencil to write that down with, we'll have that there for you. You can come back and get that. So, well, thank you again so much, Ricky, for taking time to be here with us on She Gets Published. And we appreciate your expertise, your down-to-earth conversation with us and sharing your experiences and Wish you luck as you go forward. Is there any um, thing, final thoughts you wanted to share? Best way for people to reach you if they had further questions or wanted to work with you? Oh, sure. They can absolutely email me at ricky at rickyheller.com. Would always love to hear from you. And um, we can we can go from there. But I, I would end just by saying that if you've had this sort of gnawing feeling in your gut that you would like to write something, even if you don't consider yourself a writer, rest assured that we all can write a book and we all have a book in us. So just go for it. Love that encouragement. Thank you so much, Ricky. Oh, it's been great. Thanks. That's a wrap for this episode, but don't let that get you down. Join Lynette inside the She Gets Published community where the conversation continues. Head to facebook.com slash groups slash She Gets Published to join now. See you there.
This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's voices amplified.